Well, it is good to see everybody. Welcome to the hills where we believe God has called us to follow Jesus, love our neighbors, and build an economically and racially diverse church. So whether this is your family or a guest today, uh, welcome. Acts chapter 4, page 760. We're going to continue in our sermon series through the book of Acts. Now, did you know that if you follow Jesus faithfully and wholeheartedly, your life will be free from uh, sickness, will be free from uh, worry, mm -hmm. free from enemies. Uh, life, I mean, it will just be just a bed of roses following Jesus. No? <laughs> don't, don't believe it. But unfortunately, uh, some preachers and some Christians, in, in a desire to entice others to follow Jesus, make it sound like come to Jesus and everything is going to be all right and life will get better. And, and there's some people that come to Jesus thinking that, and then life doesn't get better. In fact, it gets worse sometimes. And, and so they're like, you know, I tried that Jesus thing and it doesn't work. And they're right. It doesn't work that way. And and the, the disciples and the followers of Jesus in the, in the book of Acts, they would have laughed at such an idea. Why? Because of the, the suffering that they had to go through, the persecution that they went through. The, the, I mean, it wasn't just outside uh, things, but it was also in, inside uh, things inside the church that, that came against them. And uh, we've been journeying through the, on this journey through the book of Acts for the last two months. And so I'm going to get us up to speed. I'm not going to go over every sermon we've done through the last uh, few weeks, but I do think it's important for us starting today in Acts 4, like how did we get to where we are? And so Acts is the account of what happens after Jesus died and rose again. Jesus, he was on the earth for 40 days after he rose from the dead. He was teaching his disciples. He was showing them how scripture, everything pointed to him. He promised them, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give you power to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. And, and then Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit is poured out, right? And that's a crazy scene. There's tongues of fire. There's wind. There's speaking in tongues. And it seems a bit mysterious to us. But the, the tongues of fire and wind are both references to the Old Testament when the presence of God would come and, and fill the temple. And this was a promise that had been long waited for because the Israelites were God's people and they were people of God's presence. That's what distinguished them from, from other nations that were around them, that God was with them. They were people of the presence. And uh, we're reading through the Bible. Uh, Lisa mentioned it this morning. And if you don't have a Bible reading plan, I'd encourage you. We've got some in the back. You can find it online. But we're taking two years reading through Scripture, and we just finished up 2 Kings. And 2 Kings, uh, especially chapter 17, is just one tragedy after another. And it talks about this downward spiral of the people of God. So in 2 Kings 17, you don't have to turn there, but just a couple things that it says. It says, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord. They worshiped other gods. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. The Lord warned them by sending prophets. They would not listen. They rejected God's decrees. They imitated the nations around them. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God. And then verse 18 says, So the Lord was angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. And so they were no longer people of God's presence. But there was hope that one day God's presence would return. And at Pentecost, the presence of God has come once again to be with his people. 
And this was a fulfillment of hopes and promises. But God's fiery presence has come to dwell not in buildings, but in his people. The new temple, the covenant family of Jesus, the church. Uh, but this promise wasn't just for those first believers. It was for us today. And so the Holy Spirit's poured out. They're speaking in tongues. There's fire. There's wind. And Peter gets up and preaches and tells the people to repent and believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And like 3,000 people say, yes, we want to follow Jesus. And then these, these new communities are formed. These communities, in the end of Acts chapter 2, you should read it. Uh, and it's really a, what every church should, should look like, I, I believe. And they have uh, theological depth because they're studying scripture. They have intimate relationships, joyous worship. There's miracles, relentless evangelism, sacrificial service. And, it, and if the Hills Church, if we could just a little bit resemble the end of Acts chapter 2, that would be all right. We'll say that one more time. Thanks, Sharon, for that amen. If we could just a little bit resemble the Acts chapter 2 church, we'd be all right. There it is. All right. Come on now. So then Acts chapter 3, we have the record of the first miracle after Pentecost. And it, it wasn't the first miracle to happen, just the first one that was recorded. There's a lame man. He's healed. Uh, the gospel is advancing. Uh, there's tremendous love and joy in the church and all as well. And the first three chapters of Acts, it is all seems like a bed of roses. Everything is, is going well. But in, in Acts 4 through 7, the next couple chapters, there's an unbroken record of persecution, opposition, hostility towards the church. In fact, one scholar put it this way, if the chief actor in the story of Acts 1 and 2 is the Holy Spirit, now the chief actor almost seems to be Satan. Uh, true, he is identified only once by name, but his activity may be discerned throughout. So Acts chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, it'll also be on the screen. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, if you missed last week, you might feel like we're jumping into the middle of the story. That's because we are right in the middle of the story. Uh, so Peter and John, they're going to the temple to pray. There's a, a lame man. He, they can't walk. And um, being lame 2,000 years ago, not, not having um, the, the services that people might have today, like it was a hard life. And well, instead of me describing it to you, I got a little video that I think would uh, portray it just a, a bit better, I believe. Here they are. They met a lame man on the way. What do you think about that? <laughs> he asked for alms and held out his palms, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none. Anybody else grow up with this song? Such as I have divided. Now some of you are like, yeah, some of you are like, yeah. Those who are singing it. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God. Walking and leaping and praising this is a multimedia presentation right here. I like this right here. There it is. Smile. Okay, that's it. That's good. Cut that off. Cut that off. Uh, so, uh, I don't know how to follow that. Really? Spectacular. It's all downhill from here. 
So there was a man who couldn't walk. He was healed. This happens uh, right in the outer courts of the temple. And so thousands of people gather around. And we know there's thousands of people because it says uh, many who heard the message believed. So the number grew to about 5,000. So we were at 3,000. Now we're at five. So there's several thousand people around. And you might be like, why did this chapter four start right in the middle? Well, our chapters and verses in, in the Bible only were added about 500 years ago. And they didn't always put the chapters necessarily in the best spots. And this is one of those times where it would have been better just to extend the chapter a bit because the narrative continues. Uh, so they, the, the leaders of the temple, they see these thousands of people gathering around, like, what's going on? They gather, and, it, and uh, Luke mentions that the Sadducees were there. The Sadducees, they were the, the aristocrats of the day. They were the, the Jewish uh, leaders, and they had, they had the money, and they had the ear of, of Rome. And they were... They were in power, and so uh, basically they pacified the people for the Romans. So there wasn't uprisings and, and revolts. And they also uh, pacified the Romans for the people. They kept things under control. And the Sadducees, while they kind of ran the temple, they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in a resurrection of any kind. Uh, they didn't believe in a coming Messiah, like some, some of the Jews were looking for at that time. And, and so, in fact, they thought... Uh, the Messiah had come just a couple hundred years ago with the Maccabeans. It's a whole history lesson. We won't get into it. And so they weren't looking for a Messiah. And so when, when Peter and John come in talking about this resurrection, well, there's a couple things they think. They, they denied the resurrection. So they saw Jesus' followers as heretics and enemies of the truth. And they denied the coming Messiah. So they saw Jesus' followers as agitators and disturbers of the peace. And, and really, the resurrection uh, was a... It was going to upset the status quo, which meant they were going to be out of power. So they wanted to keep the power, and so they, the leaders, they come, and um, they show up to see what's going on. And the, verse, uh, the version we read, the New International Version, says they were greatly disturbed. Other versions say they were annoyed. The King James says they were grieved. They're like, didn't we get rid of this Jesus guy? Like, we just took care of him a couple months ago. And here we are, and they're talking about Jesus being resurrected, and doing it in the temple of all places, and, and they were disturbed. And I wonder, has your faith ever disturbed anyone? Like maybe in a conversation, uh, they're like, you believe what? You do what on Sunday mornings? Why, why would you do that? I need to repent, but I'm a, I'm a good person. Or we could flip it around, has someone else's faith ever disturbed you? After all, it was the religious church type that were the ones that were disturbed when this happened. Like maybe you've been disturbed because someone had too much faith. Let's be a bit more reasonable. Let's calm down. Or, or maybe you've been disturbed because um, the way they worship was just too demonstrative. Or maybe it wasn't demonstrative enough. And we're disturbed by someone's faith. And, but re what really disturbed the, the leaders, the religious leaders, in verse 2 it says they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so they, they want to shut it down. They arrest Peter and John. But you can't stop the gospel. The gospel is unstoppable. And in verse 4, it says they, they arrested Peter and John, but they couldn't arrest the gospel. And several thousand people proclaimed Jesus as their Messiah that day for the first time. And uh, so here are the disciples. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're doing God's work. And what does it get them? Three hots and a cot. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it probably wasn't three hots and it probably wasn't a cot back in the day. That's like prison. You get three hot meals and a cot to sleep on. Some of you with Noah. <laughs> All right. 
Um, so in, there's a couple things we can, can learn from this, a few takeaways. And the first I would say is that we, Jesus followers, are not exempt from suffering. I didn't think there'd be any amens there. Uh, we, Jesus followers, are not exempt from suffering. And I think the second takeaway is that we might face suffering precisely because we follow Jesus. Following Jesus might lead us into to more suffering. And I don't know about you, but if, if I feel slighted, like I've been wronged in even the smallest way, like I lose my mind. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just wasn't, like, I am in the right, and you did something. Um, I was having a conversation with Elora about this, and a story came to mind. Uh, she was going, I believe she was going to the rec center, going to work out. And let me just lay out kind of the, uh, the scenario for you. So you've got parking lot, right? Uh, people parking like this, and then cars coming this way, cars coming this way. So Elora's coming this way. There's a car here, and the parking lot's full. There's no empty space, right? Uh, this, this guy, gal here, backs out. Elora's been waiting here. She saw the, you know, the reverse light. Uh, this person backs out, goes like this. Well, while that car's coming this way, another car comes around the corner. <laughs> now, Elora's filled with the Holy Spirit. So she doesn't move. She stays waiting for the person to get out of the car so she could have a, a conversation. <laughs> because she's so intimidating. <laughs> so, wait, the person doesn't get out of the car. Finally, the person rolls down their window and is like, you should have used your blinker. <laughs> you know, it says she was using her blinker. And so the, eventually Laura drives around, the person goes inside, and then, then Laura slashed her th their tires. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Don't do that. Don't do that. But I mean, now that's not a very substantial, like, oh, I've been persecuted. It has nothing to do with following Jesus. But you, but you know what I'm talking about? It's just not right. It's not, it's not right. And, and what if you've obeyed God, you've trusted Jesus, and things get worse? Like, what if you have to cry out to God and say, God, hello, I'm, I'm following you, and now this happens. Like, I just, I just started tithing, and I got this bill in the mail that I wasn't expecting. Or I've been praying for my boss and my coworkers, and then I get laid off. Like, God, why? I, I've been following you, and they're, and they're talking lies about me. Like, God, what? What is going on? And this is the story of the first church. They were persecuted. And they could have said, well, this isn't fair and, and just given up. And uh, there's a couple of verses that I think will help us. 2 Timothy 3.12. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, you know all about the persecution that I endured. Indeed, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 5, Jesus is, is preaching a sermon on the mount and he gives some beatitudes, we call them. And he gives nine of them and two of them, the last two, deal with this. He, he says, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So both Jesus said we'd be persecuted. Paul said that we'd be persecuted. And what happens in Acts chapter 4, we have to read it alongside some of the other verses that we've already read. 
So we'll put them up on the screen here, but Acts 2.47, Acts 4.21, Acts 4.4, it sounds like everything's good, enjoying the favor of all the people. All the people were praising God for what had happened. Many who heard the message believed, and the number grew to about 5,000. And here's the tension that we have to, to keep as, as a church and as believers, is that the early church, there was both persecution and broad-based support. They were both attractive and growing, yet hated and attacked. Are you with me on that? They were attractive and they were growing, but they were hated and they were attacked. And, and this can cut us in two ways. If on the one hand we experience no attacks or persecutions for our faith, that means we are simply being cowards. We're not taking risk in our witness. We're not being bold. On the other hand, if, if we experience attacks without fruitfulness and attractiveness, it may mean that we are being persecuted for being harsh or insensitive or strident. Does that make sense? Like you can be persecuted just because you're a jerk. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And, and so insensitive, harsh Christians will have persecution but not praise. And cowardly Christians will have praise but not persecution. Are you, are you with me? Yeah. Like it's not that we're going out seeking persecution or we're trying to uh, get someone to be angry with us. We say, no, I've been uh, persecuted. But if our walk with God is weak, we probably get neither. Praise nor persecution. But Jesus got both. And those who walk closely with Jesus will probably get a little bit of, of both. So Peter and John, they end up in prison for the night. Uh, and they, there was no trial that night because night trials were illegal. Which is interesting, because just a few chapters ago, if, if you keep Luke and Acts together, there was a night trial for Jesus by the same court. That's another sermon. So Acts chapter 4, verse 5, says, The next day the, the rulers, the elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. One version says everybody who was anybody was there. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? And so Luke here, he has described what is known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest ruling court in Jerusalem. And what they would do is there were 71 members. A lot of them were Sadducees. There were some Pharisees in the group, temple rulers, some scribes. Is they would gather in like a horseshoe or a semicircle, the 71 leaders. And then the person who was accused and had to give a, a defense stood in the middle. It was a bit intimidating. Um, and I can imagine as, as that, that question was asked, by what power, by what name are you doing this? That, that Peter and John had to be having flashbacks to Jesus' trial just a few weeks prior to that. Was history about to re repeat itself? And we know the end of the story, what happens at the end of Acts chapter 4. But for these uh, disciples, Peter and John, they don't know what's about to happen. Um, and they could hardly expect justice from that court. I mean, the same court had brought in false witnesses against Jesus, condemned him to death, and uh, I'm reading a book called Just Mercy, and its author is Brian Stevenson. He is a uh, lawyer, started in the early 80s in, uh, down in the deep south in Alabama, and one of his very first cases when he um, began practicing was for um, a guy by the name of Walter McMillan, was a, a black man who had been sentenced to die for murder that he said he had not committed. So Walter began looking into it, and what had happened, uh, just in, in brief, brief terms, is that a young 
white woman had been killed, and there was not a single shred of tangible or physical evidence against Walter. Not a single bit. In fact, um, at his trial, there were 12 people that testified that when the murder happened, that he was with them at a church fish fry. We like fish fries around here. So there 12 of them. There were, there were three people who testified against them. The main witness had been put on death row until he said, until he would confess that Walter was, was the guilty one. Wouldn't you testify in that case? And so th- this guy was, was already, had been put on death row, said, hey, if you'll testify against Walter, you can come off death row. That sounds like a good option for me. So he comes and he, he testifies. Come to find out that guy, uh, someone else said, no, no, I was working with that guy when, when this all went down. This guy was just making it up. Uh, so his trial lasted a day and a half. And they gave him life without parole. But the, the judge was like, no, that's not harsh enough. He's getting the death penalty. So not a single shred. Like this is, I mean, you, like when I hear this stuff, I'm like, man, this guy be like, you know, further back. But the 80s, that's not that long ago. And you're like, Matthew, that kind of stuff still happens. So if, if you are one of the people at the church fish fry with Walter, and, and Walter is treated like this by the court, and you've got family members, you're talking like, Walter was, how could they do this? To Walter, I'm not going to tell you, Dan, you've got to go read the book. That's a great book. Uh, but if, if I am someone who was at, and I was at the fish fry, or I'm, I'm his family, I know he was there, and if the court brings charges against me, am I going to think I'm going to get a fair trial? No. I'm, and so I'm just, so Peter and John, I was just trying to get a frame of reference for what they're thinking when they come to stand before this crooked court who had already condemned Jesus to death. So Acts chapter 4, verse 8. See, I forgot my, uh, my phone today, so I don't have my clock. So you guys just shout at me when it starts going long. Uh, verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, who has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so uh, Peter was not known previously I mean, prior to the resurrection and prior to being uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, he was not known for doing well under pressure. Like, he was always failing. I mean, uh, you know, middle school girls could scare him away. Like, that, that's the account we have in Scripture. Middle school girls are scary. Uh, but in, the, in this moment, there was a fulfillment of Jesus' promise that words and wisdom will come to you when you stand to give an account. In fact, in Luke 21, Jesus said to his disciples, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought, be, you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. 
So if you're reading, again, Luke and Acts is, is one story. So you've, you've read that, you're coming into Acts, you're like, oh, wait a second. That's, Jesus knew what was going on. And so here, Peter tells them straightforwardly, it's Jesus. It's all Jesus. And whether it's before the, the, the large crowd that shows up at the temple or whether it's in the court giving a testimony, uh, Peter and the followers of Jesus, they don't defend themselves. Their main concern is that Jesus would be honored and glorified Amen. in that. That's and that's what, uh, that's what he, he does. And in verse 12, Peter says something that was controversial then, and it's controversial now. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, that sounds pretty narrow. That sounds pretty exclusive. That sounds offensive to our, our modern ears. In fact, I think this is one of the biggest arguments against, against Christianity today, is the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Like, how can you say, but for, for Peter, this, he wasn't. Like, Peter had watched Jesus be crucified. He, he had known him after the resurrection. He had received this authority from him through the Holy Spirit. And for Peter, it was just a a conclusion of the uniqueness of Jesus. Like, where else, who else could save me? Like, it, it wasn't a, an over against or a comparison. It's like, Jesus is the only Savior. Like, he is the only one with the credentials to save me. And I would like to go further into this today because this is such a, um, say, hot topic, but it would take me too long. And so what I've decided to do is next week, I'm going to teach on, on these verses in this way, is that how can Christianity claim there is only one way to God? So right off the bat, if, 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 that, if that makes you uncomfortable, fantastic. Come next week, we'll talk about it. And if you're a Christian who, who believes that, but you have a hard time like navigating, like, I don't want to be a bigot, because they say I'm a bigot if I believe there's one way to God. Like, we're, we're going to talk about it. So come next week, uh, we'll dive into that. So the response in, in verse 13 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. Hey, what are we going to do about these guys? Everyone in Jerusalem knows that they had performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. They had like a little huddle, came back out. Uh, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. Which is kind of funny because they were standing in judgment at that moment. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So these religious leaders, they were uh, confounded about Peter and John because they were unlearned. They were unschooled. They were just ordinary guys. And uh, this was troubling for them and it was offensive to them uh, because they didn't have the pedigree that they needed to have. And, uh, and this is something that we're familiar with in America. Like we are such a status-driven society. Yeah. 
Like, what, what, are your, what are your credentials? Where did you go to school? Where do you work? What kind of car do you drive? We don't ask, you know. Uh, where's your house? You know, what side of the neighborhood do you live on? Um, hello? You know what I'm talking about? And so we, uh, this was not something just that was 2,000 years ago, but even today we, we, we have, uh, we kind of line people up by what they should and what they, they couldn't do. And it's achievement-based. And so they're saying, who do you think you are? Be teaching people about religion. You, you haven't earned that right. And what's even more troubling is that Peter and John stood up with confidence and that they were effective and, and they weren't afraid. And, uh, but the reason they were astonished is because they did not grasp the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that uh, we all have checkered past. None of us have a pristine past. We've all sinned. We've all been self-centered. We've all have pride in our life. And so when we come before God, we're all, I would say, even less than ordinary. But God receives us. He gives us his grace, and he gives us gifts, and he gives us the Holy Spirit. And so that just your everyday Joe, just your ordinary man, your ordinary woman can do great things for God. So you can do great things for God, regardless of your background or your pedigree or what the world may, may say about you, what you can and can't do. And there's no hierarchy of who can and can't be used by God. There's, there's no who's who. You guys remember the who's who book? Anyone like, I remember like in high school, I got this invitation to be in the who's who's book and you have to like come up with this biography and they put it, nobody? Ever heard of that? <sighs> That illustration fall flat. Don't use that one anymore. Hang on a second. No who's who. But if there was a who's who for Christians, there'd only be one entry. Jesus Christ. We would have just one entry. And so the gospel, it turns our worldly thinking upside down because in God's kingdom, there's no pecking order. And as a church, we need ordinary men and women committed to walking a spirit-filled life. I mean, if we're going to do anything that's worth anything for eternity, it's not going to be because a couple of trained religious people are doing the discipling and the leading and the serving. It's going to be because everybody is ordinary people are filled with the spirit of God. And that's the, the call today for us and the, uh, say us, the call uh, for you today is that God is calling you, doesn't matter your pedigree or your background, and God wants to use you. And, and so we all need to be spending time with Jesus mm -hmm. so that we can say we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Amen.